of many promises. True? Yes? No? True or false? True. True. Maybe as I say that, maybe your minds start uh, thinking of some of the promises in the Scriptures. Maybe, just, maybe you can just uh, even shout out some right now. What are, what are some promises in Scripture that maybe you know? Maybe some of these are your life verses. Anybody? Father Abraham will have many sons. Good. Other promises? I will be with you always. Excellent. Other promises that you know of? Yes, Adriana. Is my mic on? My mic is on. I will, I will talk like this. Yes, Darcy. Yeah. Wonderful. First John one nine. Great. Other promises, scripture, you know. Yep. Great. Other promises. Meekful inherit the earth. Beatitudes. Yes, Caleb, what do you got? Yeah, yeah. You'll be happy and safe, right? You obey the Lord. It may go well with you. Yes, Andrew, another one. Messiah will come again. Great. Others? Is that all? I guess, I guess we've exhausted our time, huh? I guess uh, we can go on now. No, I, I've, got, I've got several pages here of, of promises in the Scripture that just again and again and again and again, God's promises to us. Uh, you've mentioned several. I'll just I'll give a few more. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isaiah 40, verse 10. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. Psalm 23. Every line of that psalm is a promise. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. It goes on and on. Jesus, the Beatitudes. Jerry, you mentioned one of the Beatitudes. They all, they're promises. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It goes on, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Just promises after promise after promise. Jesus gave His disciples many. Come to Me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. I give eternal life to them, and they will never, never perish, and no one will snatch them out of My hand. Epistles are filled with promises. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to perfect it until the day of Christ. My God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I'm convinced that we could go the whole morning long just promise after promise after promise after promise after promise in the Scripture and not exhaust them all. 
promises of God. Some have argued even that this is a way that you should put your Bibles together. Walt Kaiser, great Old Testament uh, teacher, brilliant man, funny man if you've known him or heard him speak. He uh, speaks about his, his theology. He, he, he wrote a book called Toward an Old Testament Theology in which he cased the whole thing in promises. The promises of the Messiah, right? The promises to David, kind of like covenants. Mark Dever, when he wrote a survey on the New Testament, preaching through every book of the Bible, he called the first volume Promises Made. The second volume, which is the New Testament, Promises Kept. It's a good way to look at your Bible. As God makes promises and He keeps them, and our part in it is merely to trust in the promises of God. He calls us to trust Him for our daily bread, for wisdom in trials, comfort in fears, guidance in our life, help in need, and most of all, for the salvation of our souls. I mean, that is the greatest promise He made, right? That we believe and trust in Jesus. And as He said, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. We trust God not by works we've done, but only according to His mercy. And eternal life is ours. There are many promises that God has made. All of them are to be entrusted to it. We ought to, we ought to trust ourselves to God and His promises. Well, this morning we are talking about promises. If you haven't opened your Bible yet to Hebrews, I invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. We've come in our exposition of Hebrews to chapter 6, verse 13. I want to read the text for you. By God's grace, we will get through 13 through 20 this morning. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, you can see right there the promise. In fact, even as I read through this, just notice all the promise words, the swearing words, the oath words. Just, just notice them. Kids, you can circle them. That's one of your questions on, the, on your children's notes there. When God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The text breaks down nicely into two pieces. The first piece goes from 13 through 18. speaks about the promise of God, God's promise. The second half is our hope, verses 19 and 20. As I mentioned earlier, before I read this, just the number of times that verses 13 through 18 speak about promise. We have it there in verse 13. God made the promise to Abraham. We see twice he's swearing. He couldn't swear by anyone greater, so he swore by himself. The promise, the content of that is verse 14. I will surely bless you. There's the promise coming. And I will surely multiply you. It's as sure as can be. And so, verse 15, says Abraham obtained the promise. And then he speaks about how we make promises. We swear and we make oaths. And when we have an oath, it ends our disputes because it's a confirmation. It's what a promise is. And then 8, 17 
It speaks about how God wants to make known His promise. How He interposed with an oath. And God can't lie so that we might have hope to trust in His promises. So I want to focus this morning upon God's promise. And the best way I, I found as I studied this passage this week was, was not to just kind of step through verse by verse, which is my normal plan of action, but more to kind of step back. And look here, he's talking about Abraham. He's talking about a promise he made to Abraham. I want to take us back to Genesis, kind of tell the whole story of the promise to Abraham. And then when we come back here to Hebrews 6, it'll just like, like open up for us. Um, but I felt that's the best way to do it. So turn your Bibles back to Genesis 12. We're going to look at the promise made to Abraham. Actually, the promises made to Abraham because there are many of them. And they all start in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Um, this is like a, a major fulcrum, a major turning point in the Bible. Up to this point, God is talking about the world. He's talking about how He created the world, the fall, the flood, how the nations are scattering. And it's now Genesis chapter 12 that He begins to focus attention upon one man, Abraham Ur the Chaldeans, who is from an idol-worshipping family, is called out, chosen, elect by God to follow the Lord. And the Lord says, Genesis 12, verse 1, to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. We hear, see here the promises that God made to Abraham. It's all, it's all one promise, but it's, it's many. It's multifaceted. First of all, there's a promise of land. Go, I'm going to bring you into a land. And there's a promise there of, of nation or of seed. I'm going to make you a great nation. In other words, your posterity is going to be num numerous. You're going to have children and their children are going to have many children and many, many more children. And from you, Abraham, is going to form a complete and great nation. And I'm going to bless you. And through you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. That last phrase there in verse 3 is quoted in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, which we looked at earlier. It says that the gospel was preached beforehand, saying that in Abraham all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is a foreshadow of the gospel. It's come to fruition in Jesus Christ. That God's blessing and promise here to Abraham has been fulfilled in Jesus. And that's how all the families of the earth are blessed, because we are blessed in Him. It's a, the turning point in many ways of the Bible. God puts His attention upon Abraham then the Jewish people through which comes the Messiah and salvation then comes to the world, to those who believe. And throughout the book of Genesis, to Abraham, this promise comes again and again and again. I'm just going to show you that. Chapter 12, verse 7. The Lord appeared again to Abraham saying, To your descendants I will give this land. That's when he had left Ur the Chaldeans, come into the land of Canaan. He's there and God says, This is the land I'm going to give you. Just making it sure. And then because of famine, Abraham went down to Canaan, went, left Canaan and went down to Egypt and re returned to the land separated from Lot. We read in Genesis chapter 13. Look over there at Genesis chapter 13, verse 14. God said, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which you see I will give to you and to your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also 
can be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Here's a repetition again of God's promise. Same things. Here's the land. There's a promise that his posterity is going to be great in the seed. And, and I ask you now, why did he repeat his promise? Why did he repeat it? It's a good question to ask. Why did he repeat it? Well, I think he repeated it to make a point. Saying, Abraham, this is going to happen. All right? It happens like this in our house. Okay? Dad comes in from his office and announces, um, you know, I, I, I think it'd be a good thing. Maybe we can order pizza tonight. And the kids go, <gasps> what did you say? And I said, I think, I think we'll, we'll order pizza tonight. Is that okay with you guys? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What? Are you really? We're going to order? Yes, we are going to order pizza tonight. And then they ask, what, can we have pop with it too? And I say, yes. Okay, really? We can have, yes, we can have, okay, pizza and pop party tonight. And see how I've got to emphasize it again and again to make it believable to them? I think that's one thing that the Lord is doing here. He's repeating His promise to Abraham saying, yes, yes, you're going to inherit the land. Yes, yes, you are going to be many and numerous. Well, He repeats it again. Chapter 15. Look over there. Chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you and your reward shall be very great. And, and Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, This man, Eleazar, will not be your heir. But one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look towards the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said, So shall your descendants be. Just a promise there again of multiplied descendants from Abraham. And then Abraham's face shines. He believed in the Lord and it, he reckoned it to him as righteousness. We also saw that in Galatians 3 as well. He believed God, and then God in turn looks upon Abraham as righteous. That's the gospel right there. Preached to Abraham. But still Abraham, it's interesting here that he wanted some help in believing these things. And he said in verse 7, God said, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And he said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? He's just looking there for some more proof. He's said it, twice or three times to him now and, and it's, not, it's not quite enough. Can I, can I have more? And so um, God does this ritual which he performs which Abraham would have known quite well because in the ancient Near East kings were known to make treaties like this. They take animals and they sacrifice them and they, they cut them in half. And in this case there was a heifer, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove and a pigeon. Cut them up, lay them down kind of in a row that, that they could walk up and down. And in the ancient Near East kings would walk up and down these sacrificed animals and uh, would basically be a promise that says, we're going to do this. We're making a covenant. We're making a pact together. And if I fail, so may I be like those animals. Kind of, kind of the blood, blood spilled over this covenant was the idea. In this case, however, it says in verse 17 that God um, put Abraham to sleep. Verse 12, I'm sorry, rather. Abraham fell asleep and God was the only one, verse 17, who went through as a smoking oven and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. It was God alone 
who is making this promise. But performing this, this ritual so that, that Abraham might know that God is serious about this. You know, and we do this as well. When we're intending to make a large purchase such as a house, we'll put down earnest money. Yes, I'm serious about this and I'm writing you a check and here is money. If I default on this covenant, well, I, I default there on that money. It's like my pledge. It's like the thing I'm doing so as to inherit, so as to keep my promises. And that's what God was doing. He, just, he did this ritual to say I'm really serious about this. It's going to take place. Abraham still wasn't convinced of it because in chapter 16 we see Abraham doubting, taking matters in his own hands, having Ishmael through uh, Hagar, Sarah's handmaiden. And this is what's so encouraging about Abraham. He is the father of faith, but he faltered in his faith as well. He wasn't perfect in any measure. To be sure, his faith was genuine, but displayed times of doubt. And perhaps that's why God appeared to him again. So we're counting three, four times now. Genesis 17. We see the same promises coming. When Abram was 99 years old, Genesis 17, verse 1, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am the Lord God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you and I will multiply you exceedingly. There's that same promise again coming. And Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram. You should be called Abraham. I have made you the father of a multitude of nations and I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations come of you and kings will come forth from you and I will establish my covenant between me and you and to your descendants after you throughout their generations to an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. And again, you see the, the same thing, that God's just pro- promising the same thing. Numbers, n- numerous people from His line. Be a, be a great nation. Kings of comfort, just a blessing there and also the promise there of the land. And then, following on in Genesis 17, there is the, uh, the ritual of circumcision that He gives. The sign, a physical reminder that Jews could use to look at the reminder of God's promise. And you know, we do that today. We have physical reminders of a promise we make. If we're going to uh, purchase something, uh, again, something large, we take our Rock Valley Bible Church pen in hand and we write our name. We sign our John Hancock to it. This is, we're serious about this. We, we sign our names to a check that says, I'm good for this money. We sign our name to the contract saying, I'm good to the agreements of everything that was given here. And that's what God is doing. He's giving them a sign that says, this is... Oh, I'm telling you, you look at that and you just say, yes, God is going to be faithful to His covenant. And then down in verse 21, again we see a little reminder. My covenant I will establish with Isaac, not with Hagar and Ishmael, whom Sarah will bear you at this season next year. And then finally in chapter 21, the promise comes. Think about it. Now how long has Abraham waited for this? He was called from Ur of the Chaldeans when he was 75 years old. And so now he's 100 years old. So kids, maybe you can help with the math. What is it? Called when he was 75. 100 when Isaac is born. Emma, do you got it? You don't. That's too, yeah, Nathan, I know you got it. Your dad's an engineer. 25 years, exactly. Good job. 
25 years, he's waiting for the promise. But God, again, is, is telling him, it's true, it's true, it's true, it's coming. And finally, having patiently waited, it came in Isaac. Isaac was born. Great wonder, great, great blessing. And then the test comes. Genesis 22. I think most of you are familiar with this. It says in 22 verse 1, it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. And he said, take now your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah, which is probably where Jerusalem is today, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. He split wood for the burnt offering, arose and went to the place which God had told him. As the story progresses, you see them arising, you see them coming to the place. Abraham says, no, you, you servants stay behind. My son and I will go and worship the Lord. Isaac said, I see the wood, I see the flint, but where's the sacrifice? God will provide a lamb for us. It's up there on the, uh, the mountain, as it says in verse 10, then Abraham stretched out his hand, took the knife to slay his son, but the angel of the Lord called from him, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, don't stretch out your hand against the lad. We don't know how old Isaac was, 10, 15, 20 very ambiguous there, but he was a, a young boy, even maybe up to 20. And do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham raised his eyes and looked and saw the ram in the thicket and said, God will provide. And then in verse 16 comes the promise that's quoted in Hebrews chapter 6. In many ways, there's nothing new about this promise. It's the same old, same old, but he, he gives a little bit different assurance this time. He says in verse 16, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed, I will greatly bless you. And I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gates of, the, your, of their enemies." In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you obeyed my voice. And here I think is some sense the key. In, in chapter 12, he makes the oath. In chapter 13, he affirms it. In chapter 15, he makes a covenant with a sacrifice to, to show that he's really serious about this. How secure the promise is. In chapter 17, gives him a sign he's going to keep his word in circumcision. And now, in Genesis chapter 22, he makes an oath. And you have to catch that there. In verse 16, he says this, By myself I have sworn. And the point here is God's saying that it is going to come to pass. I've sworn by myself. You know, we, we swear like this as well. We take a witness stand, a court of law, hold our right hand up. We used to put our hands in the Bible. It's gone now so much. We put our right hand up and the, the clerk says, whatever, repeat after me, I promise to tell the truth. What? We tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And then we say, so help me God. Appeal to God is a higher authority. Yes, I'm going to tell the truth. I promise. And I demonstrate my eagerness. I'm calling God to witness before me. If I fail, may God strike me dead. Is kind of the, the longhand version of that. And so that's how we deal with matters of courtrooms. And that's the very thing that God did here. 
However, he's in a predicament because he doesn't have anyone greater than himself to hold him accountable. <clears throat> so he holds himself accountable. So God comes in the courtroom and he says, I promise to swear the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me me. That's what he says. It's right there. By myself I have sworn. And that should be secure. And that should be sure. And indeed, this is the last time God promises anything to Abraham. Genesis chapter 25, we read of his death. Okay, with that as a background, looking particularly at Abraham and God's promises there, Hebrews chapter 6 should just preach itself in some sense, should explain itself. There shouldn't be any great difficulties here. I think it just will, will unfold itself simply for us. <clears throat> we see, verse 13, <clears throat> that when God made the promise to Abraham... Since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And again, we see the same themes of the blessings of God. Just, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. You're going to be lots of people. I'm going to multiply you. God swearing by himself. So sure are the promises of God. As sure, as sure as sure as sure can be. <clears throat> he repeats it, Genesis 13, confirms it by a covenantal ritual, gives him a sign, and swearing by himself. And that's the point. The promise to Abraham was sure and steady and it was to be trusted. Then verse 15 we read of Abraham. Having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. So we went through the account of Genesis. Easy to think how these things took place quickly. But they were long periods of time. Right? So we said 25 years from leaving Ur of the Chaldeans until Isaac was born. That's a long time. And maybe you've got some trial in your life right now where God has promised to never leave you, forsake you. It may appear like that. To provide for all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And it may be, God, it's been a long time. <clears throat> right, Lance, you've waited for eight, nine months for a job? Kind of lost track, something like that. It might seem a long time. How many months? Nine months. Nine months. Might seem a long time. It is a long time. Abraham waited 25 years for a son. And so he's got this son, and so God's promised to be a multitude of blessings. Do you know how long it was until he got a grandson? Not 200 years, but, but close. 60 more years. Isaac was 60 when he had his first children, twins, Jacob and Esau. And that's, a lot, that's like 85 years from this first promise until he begins to see and he died with two grandchildren. So in some measure, he didn't even really see the full fulfillment of the promise. Oh, he saw the seed of the promise though. And he did, he did see a, a blessing in, in Isaac. It says here, he did obtain the promise. There's several places in Hebrews that says that Abraham died in faith not receiving the promises. And I think the idea here is that he, he just tasted of it. He just began to see of the blessings of God. But never in his life did he fully see it. He never saw the multitudes that God had promised. But Jesus did say that Abraham saw his day. Remember when he was arguing with the Pharisees? And uh, Jesus said to these Pharisees, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Abraham saw the fullness of the promises of this blessing to him as it came in the fullness of Christ.
Well, verse 16 then speaks about, like I've spoken about, how we make promises, we swear by someone greater than ourselves. See, when God calls us to believe and trust and hope in Him, He doesn't give us something far-fetched to believe. I mean, God doesn't say, well, believe the moon is made of cheese and I'll give you eternal life. He doesn't say that. No, He works hard to give us some credibility of Himself. He gives us good reasons to believe. He gives us good reason to hope. And let me just say this. This was the issue for the original readers of the book of Hebrews. You know, there's nothing worse than someone who loses hope. If you lose hope, you're finished. On any athletic team, if you're going against somebody and you say, "Uh, we're not going to win, you know what? You're not going to win. And if you've got some class you're studying and you just say, I failed that test, guess what's going to happen? You're going to fail. And when you lose hope, there's no hope. It's hope of the future that gives us hope, gives us a, a power and an energy and a desire to press on. And that is the context here of Hebrews. You know, the theme of Hebrews right there on the screen. Jesus is better, so press on. And that is what our life is called to. Our life is called to pressing on. And the context here of Hebrews chapter 6, you recall two weeks ago, we are in chapter 6, verse 4, and, and we looked at these people who had come so close they had tasted of these things of the heavenly gift, and they they tasted the good word of God. And God says that they fall away. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance because they came so close, and they forsook God. They spat in His face. It's impossible to renew them again. And, and naturally, the question would have come to their mind: Well, are we like that? Might we fall? Might we fail? Might we be like that? And the writer is just giving these illustrations. Okay, here's the illustration. Verse 7 and 8, right? Ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth fruit useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it's worthless and close to being cursed. It ends up being, born, being burned. In other words, rain-soaked ground that yields thorns and thistles will experience the curse of God. But rain-soaked ground which brings forth fruit will receive the blessing from God. And then he says in verse 9, we're convinced that you have such fruit. Verse 9. Verse 10, God is not unjust to forget the work and the love which you have shown toward His name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. You have a fruit in your life. You're ministering to the saints. You have a love for the Lord. But you're being flushed out in these ways. But Christianity is all about pressing on. And that's what verses 11 and 12 are. They're about pressing on. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. So that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Christianity is about being diligent to press on. Paul said that I press on toward the goal for the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He said a, a diligent pursuit of faith in Christ. He says, not that I have already obtained it, have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Philippians 3. He says, oh, that I may know Him. Paul's just pressing on and, and on in Philippians 3. You can see that. And that's what Paul's calling these people, the Hebrews, to do. is to press on. Don't be sluggish. But to press on. And to press on particularly what? Verse 11 says, to realize the full assurance of hope till the end. 
A full assurance of hope. That is a steadfast resolve, faith, trust, that this Christianity is really true. Jesus was a man. He died upon the cross. He was God because He raised from the dead. He sits there at the throne of God, the Father Almighty, and my faith and trust is in Him and His sufficient sacrifice. And I am sure of that, and that is my hope, and that's what we need to be diligent to come to, the full assurance of this hope. And then, verse 12 speaks about how we're called to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In other words, look to the saints who've been tested, who've received promises, who then are patient. Who's the perfect example of that? Well, Abraham is. And so that's why he speaks all this about Abraham. And verses 12 through 20 merely expand the verses 11 and 12, showing the promises that Abraham received and showing the hope that there is there. And I just say this, that for those who originally received the letter, this counsel would have come as very helpful and very valuable for them. They were in a difficult situation. As you know, they, they come out of Judaism... They, these were Hebrews. These were Jewish people. They're involved in all these sacrifices and rituals. Jesus put before them and said, Jesus is better. Listen, He's better than the angels. He's a better revelation than the prophets. He's better than Moses. He's better than the high priest. His covenant is better. His sanctuary is better. Everything is better about Jesus. His sacrifice is better, so pursue Him. But in pursuing Him and pursuing after Him, there's this tug. But these, these Hebrew people are saying, you have forsaken the traditions. You have forsaken your heritage. Come back. Come back to us. This is where the real righteousness comes. And they were bullied around by these Jewish people. In chapter 10, in fact, just turn over there in chapter 10. Look at, look at the, some of the things they endured. Remember the former days. When after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, right? When you came to see Jesus as the Messiah, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. Partly, here's some of the sufferings, by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. People were laughing at you, making a reproach. Those are the Christians, those who believe in that sect. They're, they're heretics, right? They're cultists. They follow after these things. They're, they were made fun of. And tribulation, I believe that's talking about even what's showing next in verse 34. But we'll get to that. Partly we made a public spectacle through reproach and tribulation, partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. So not only were, were they receiving it, but if they didn't receive it, they were sharers with others who were so treated. It's like, for instance, if someone from our church was thrown into jail, we would share in that. And that was happening. Verse 34, you showed sympathy to the prisoners. These prisoners are Christians who believe in Christ, who are thrown in jail because it was against the Judaism of the day. Remember Paul. That's what Paul was about. He was about imprisoning the Christians for believing a lie and for blaspheming God. And that's where these people were. They were, they were in the church and then imprisoned. And these people of the church were visiting them, showing sympathy to them. And look what else happened to them. They accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. They were having their property taken away because they were Christians. Praise the Lord, we don't live in a country like that, though there are others who live in countries like that today. These were hard times. And you think about, well, if I believe in Jesus, all will go well with me. Here's the gospel of the first century. You believe in Jesus, people make fun of you, and they'll throw you in prison, and they'll take your property. Are you going to come? What's going to help them? 
the only thing that's going to help them is that a hope which is beyond this life and beyond this world. And that's what verse 34 says. Why could they accept joyfully the seizure of their property? Because they knew that they had for themselves a better possession and a lasting one. They were looking to the heavenly reward, as verse 35 says. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. And this comes back to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11. Obtain the full assurance of hope. You've got this confidence, you've got this hope, and, and, and keep that because that has a full reward for you. And verse 36, you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, that is believing in Christ until the end, you may receive what was promised. And I do believe the call of our text this morning is to imitate those who have gone before us who have endured difficulty, they've endured hostility, they've waited for many, many years until eventually receiving the promises. The one to imitate is Abraham. There's the whole link to the passage. Look to him. God was faithful. He said he was going to promise. And he did. He came through. And for us even, our promise is even more sure and more steadfast. Think about how many times did God promise to Abraham? Four or five, something like that, six maybe. How many times he promised to us that those who take refuge in Christ we preserve for eternity? Many, 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 many times. More than Abraham. And if God swore to Abraham, even once was good enough, but he swore again and again and again so we might have the full assurance of that. So likewise also when the promise comes to us of Christ, we can be sure of that. Abraham was one who had great patience, so also we have, should have great patience and difficulty. He was the one who had hope even though all hope seemed lost. I love the way that Paul wrote about Abraham in Romans 4.18. In hope against hope he believed. In hope against hope. I mean, he had no hope, but he still hoped because he considered his own body as good as dead. And he considered the deadness of Sarah's womb. And yet, because of the promise of God, he believed and we're called to look to Abraham and imitate his faith. So the writer's saying here, listen, in the midst of your difficulty, in the midst of your discouragement, the midst of your trials, be patient and hope in the promises of God. Be patient to know that the meek will inherit the earth. Be patient to know that blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Be patient in knowing that blessed are the pure in heart, even when all around me are evil and wicked, because they shall see God. Know that blessed are you when men persecute you and cast all insults at you and say evil things, because your reward is great in heaven. And that's the thing that's going to catch you through. It won't be easy. It took years for Abraham. But see the end that Abraham did. Well, this is the core of our hope is in Christ. Look at verse 19. It takes us where our hope is in Christ. This hope we have. Right? What hope? It's the hope that's set before us. What's set before us? This hope of Jesus Christ. See, when God calls us to believe and trust and hope in Him, He doesn't give us something far-fetched to believe. I mean, God doesn't say, well, believe the moon is made of cheese and I'll give you eternal life. He doesn't say that. No, He works hard to give us some credibility of Himself. He gives us good reasons to believe. He gives us good reason to hope. And let me just say this. This was the issue for the original readers of the book of Hebrews. You know, there's nothing worse than someone who loses hope. 
If you lose hope, you're finished. On any athletic team, if you're going against somebody and you say, "Uh, we're not going to win, you know what? You're not going to win. And if you've got some class you're studying and you just say, I failed that test, guess what's going to happen? You're going to fail. And when you lose hope, there's no hope. It's hope of the future that gives us hope, gives us a, a power and an energy and a desire to press on. And that is the context here of Hebrews. You know, the theme of Hebrews right there on the screen. Jesus is better, so press on. And that is what our life is called to. Our life is called to pressing on. And the context here of Hebrews chapter 6, you recall two weeks ago, we're in chapter 6, verse 4, and, and we looked at these people who had come so close they had tasted of these things of the heavenly gift and they, they tasted the good word of God and God says that they fall away. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance because they came so close and they forsook God. They spat in His face. It's impossible to renew them again. And, and naturally the question would have come to their mind, well, are we like that? Might we fall? Might we fail? Might we be like that? And the writer is just giving these illustrations. Okay, here's the illustration. Verse 7 and 8. Right? Ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth fruit useful to those for whose sake it is also till receives a blessing. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed. It ends up being, born, being burned. In other words, rain-soaked ground that yields thorns and thistles will experience the curse of God. But rain-soaked ground which brings forth fruit will receive the blessing from God. And then he says in verse 9, we're convinced that you have such fruit. Verse 9. Verse 10, God is not unjust to forget the work and the love which you have shown toward His name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. You have a fruit in your life. You're ministering to the saints. You have a love for the Lord which is being flushed out in these ways. But Christianity is all about pressing on. And that's what verses 11 and 12 are. They're about pressing on. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. So that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Like Christianity is about being diligent to press on. Paul said that I press on toward the goal for the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He said, a diligent pursuit of faith in Christ. He says, not that I have already obtained it, have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Philippians 3. He says, oh, that I may know Him. Paul's just pressing on and and on in Philippians 3. You can see that. And that's what Paul's calling these people, the Hebrews, to do. is to press on. Don't be sluggish. But to press on. And to press on particularly what? Verse 11 says, to realize the full assurance of of hope till the end. A full assurance of hope. That is a steadfast resolve, faith, trust, that this Christianity is really true. Jesus was a man. He died upon the cross. He was God because He raised from the dead. He sits there at the throne of God, the Father Almighty, and my faith and trust is in Him and His sufficient sacrifice. And I am sure of that and that is my hope and that's what we need to be diligent to come to the full assurance of this hope. And then... Verse 12 speaks about how we're called to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In other words, look to the saints who've been tested, who've received promises, who then are patient. Who's the perfect example of that? Well, Abraham is. And so that's why he speaks all this about Abraham. 
and verses 12 through 20 merely expand on verses 11 and 12, showing the promises that Abraham received and showing the hope that there is there. And I just say this, that for those who originally received the letter, this counsel would have come as very helpful and very valuable for them. They were in a difficult situation. As you know, they, they come out of Judaism. They, these were Hebrews. These were Jewish people. They're involved in all these sacrifices and rituals. Jesus put before them and said, Jesus is better. Listen, He's better than the angels. He's a better revelation than the prophets. He's better than Moses. He's better than the high priest. His covenant is better. His sanctuary is better. Everything is better about Jesus. His sacrifice is better, so pursue Him. But in pursuing Him and pursuing after Him, there's this tug. But these, these Hebrew people are saying, you have forsaken the traditions. You have forsaken your heritage. Come back. Come back to us. This is where the real righteousness comes. And they were bullied around by these Jewish people in chapter 10. In fact, just turn over there in chapter 10. Look at, look at the, some of the things they endured. Remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, right? When you came to see Jesus as the Messiah, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. Partly, here's some of the sufferings, by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. People were laughing at you, making a reproach. Those are the Christians, those who believe in that sect, they're, they're heretics, right? They're cultists. They follow after these things. They're, they were made fun of. And tribulation, I believe that's talking about even what's showing next in verse 34. But we'll get to that. Partly we made a public spectacle through reproach and tribulation, partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. So not only were, were they receiving it, but if they didn't receive it, they were sharers with others who were so treated. It's like, for instance, if someone from our church was thrown into jail, we would share in that. And that was happening. Verse 34, you showed sympathy to the prisoners. These prisoners are Christians who believe in Christ, who are thrown in jail because it was against the Judaism of the day. Remember Paul. That's what Paul was about. He was about imprisoning the Christians for believing a lie and for blaspheming God. And that's where these people were. They were, they were in the church and then imprisoned. And these people of the church were visiting them, showing sympathy to them. And look what else happened to them. They accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. They were having their property taken away because they were Christians. Praise the Lord, we don't live in a country like that, though there are others who live in countries like that today. These were hard times. And you think about, well, if I believe in Jesus, all will go well with me. Here's the gospel of the first century. You believe in Jesus, people make fun of you, and they'll throw you in prison, and they'll take your property. You going to come? What's going to help them? The only thing that's going to help them is that a hope which is beyond this life and beyond this world. And that's what verse 34 says. Why could they accept joyfully the seizure of their property? Because they knew that they had for themselves a better possession and a lasting one. They were looking to the heavenly reward, as verse 35 says. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. And this comes back to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11. Obtain the full assurance of hope. You've got this confidence, you've got this hope, and, and, and keep that because that has a full reward for you. And verse 36, you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, that is believing in Christ until the end, you may receive what was promised. And I do believe the call of our text this morning is to imitate those who have gone before us who 
have endured difficulty, they've endured hostility, they've waited for many, many years until eventually receiving the promises. The one to imitate is Abraham. There's the whole link to the passage. Look to him. God was faithful. He said he was going to promise, and he did. He came through. And for us even, our promise is even more sure and more steadfast. Think about how many times did God promise to Abraham? Four or five, something like that? Six, maybe? How many times did he promise to us? That those who take refuge in Christ we preserve for eternity. Many, 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 many times. More than Abraham. And if God swore to Abraham, even once was good enough, but he swore again and again and again, so we might have the full assurance of that. So likewise also when the promise comes to us of Christ, we can be sure of that. Abraham was one who had great patience, so also we have should have great patience and difficulty. He was the one who had hope even though all hope seemed lost. I love the way that Paul wrote about Abraham in Romans 4.18. In hope against hope he believed. In hope against hope. I mean, he had no hope, but he still hoped because he considered his own body as good as dead. And he considered the deadness of Sarah's womb. And yet, because of the promise of God, he believed. And we're called to look to Abraham and imitate his faith. So the writer's saying here, listen, in the midst of your difficulty, in the midst of your discouragement, the midst of your trials, be patient and hope in the promises of God. Be patient to know that the meek will inherit the earth. Be patient to know that blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Be patient in knowing that blessed are the pure in heart, even when all around me are evil and wicked, because they shall see God. Know that blessed are you when men persecute you and cast all insults at you and say evil things because your reward is great in heaven. And that's the thing that's going to catch you through. It won't be easy. It took years for Abraham. But see the end that Abraham did. Well, this is the core of our hope is in Christ. Look at verse 19. It takes us where our hope is. It's in Christ. This hope we have. Right? What hope? It's the hope that's set before us. What's set before us? This hope of Jesus Christ that we have, verse 19, as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And then in chapter 7, he's going to talk about Melchizedek, that that he wanted to say, chapter 5, verse 11, concerning Melchizedek, we have much to explain. It's hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. He's going to come back to that and we'll get to that next week. But this week, we are looking at the hope that we have in Christ. Here, Jesus is called an anchor of the soul. This hope we have in Jesus is an anchor of the soul. The only time in Scripture anchor is ever used is spiritual illustration, probably because the seed of the Jews was bad. They weren't sailors. That was where the Philistines were. That's where the other people were. They were hill country people. But the illustration would have been understood by them. It's easily understood. You use an anchor to secure the location of a boat. Right? You're, you're drifting along in a boat without an anchor. You're just going to kind of drift along. But with an anchor, you can solidify yourself right there to the ground of the sea floor. It sits the heart of the sea, secure in the ground, so the shifting winds and waves don't move you. You can go to sleep at night knowing full well, there's my anchor. I'm going to wake up in the exact same spot as I was before, firmly rooted in the ground. And the illustration's easy for us, right? Jesus Christ is our anchor. He's not moving. 
And if she's not moving, we aren't moving either because He is our hope. The text says that our hope in Jesus is sure and it's steadfast. In other words, it's not going to move. It's not going to shift. It is sure and steady. So the author is going to say in chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus isn't just moving around, changing. You know, there is a neurotheology called process theology that God is learning more as He just reveals Himself more. He's changing. And more. That, that has no hope because a God who's changing, you, you never know what God, kind of God you're going to get. But Jesus Christ, who's the same yesterday and today and forever, we can hope in Him because we have a firm hope. And notice how the anchor is described. He is described as an anchor of the soul. In other words, our, our soul is like a, a boat which needs securing. <clears throat> and attached to our soul is this rope with an anchor on the other hand. But here it is. Rather than being thrown deep, this anchor is like made of helium or something. When we throw this anchor out, and it goes whoop, it goes right up where Jesus is in heaven. Look what it says. One which enters within the veil. And that's an allusion to the veil of the, the Holy of Holies in the heavens because that's where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. So our hope is anchored to Jesus who is in heaven at the right hand of God who ever lives to make intercession for us. He is in the heavenly holy place. As we work our way through Hebrews, that's going to be a theme. We're going to see that a lot. Jesus Christ being the high priest at the throne of God. And that's where our anchor is and we've got a rope somehow attached to our souls. The fear comes, well, will I be one of those who fall away? Well, catch this. Jesus has a tether on your soul. And that anchor is firm in heaven. Nothing's going to see Jesus expelled from the throne room. He's waiting for His enemies to be made a footstool and He's got us on a tether. And He will bring us to glory if we have that hope. So I close just saying, do you have that hope in Jesus? Is your hope, when you think about the, the cross of Christ, is, that, is that, that where all your hope is? And you say, you know what, I'm all in because I know that that is secure where it is. That's what call, the call of us is to be, the full assurance of hope here in verse 11. And the, the author of the book of Hebrews is saying this, is the promises of God are great, they're worthy to be trusted, we ought to hope in those firm and secure promises. May the Lord give us grace to have that hope. Let's pray. Lord, we need your help in every way. We are not sufficient of ourselves. Our sufficiency is in Christ. I'm thankful that we are in your hand. You are not in ours. As one of the Puritans said, the security of the child in the mother's arms is not the security of the child's grip to the mother, but is the security of the mother's grip to the child. And so likewise, God, that is where our hope and our trust is, is that we, held firmly by You, would pray that You would tether us in, would help keep us in that final day. May we have endurance. May we do the will of God. May we believe and trust in Christ. May we press on until the end. Lord, I pray that, that we would see even this day the greatness of the promises that You've given to us, that our hope, might come easily. The greater the promise, the easier the hope. 
And so show us how great your promises are and how sure and steadfast they are. They would fix our hearts and our minds on him. We thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the book of Hebrews which stretches us and, and helps us and may it bear fruit in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.